This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are finishing our sermon series on the book of Micah today. So we're going to be in the very last chapter of Micah, Micah chapter 7, in the last verses. And as I kind of mentioned in this prayer, uh, there, there, are lots, there are lots of things that happen in our life that, that cause us to lose hope. Um, and if maybe I could just say it this way, um, in the midst of depression and anxiety or overwhelmed at our own sin or facing what seems like an unchanging future of something that we're doing that we hate, uh, hopelessness is very easy. Hopefulness is very difficult. And I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that, uh, where in the midst of, of, of the pains and trials of this life, whether it's, uh, there's a clear connection between your own personal sin and, and what you're receiving, or whether it's just because of the brokenness of this world, that you've looked out and you've said, where's the hope? How am I supposed to do it? And you know, Christians sometimes, uh, you know, we don't always give the best answers because we know that we're not supposed to be hopeless people. We're supposed to be hopeful people. And so uh, as we interact with people that might be feeling hopeless, even if we ourselves are not, or even maybe our self-talk when we're feeling hopeless is like, yeah, you know, but God is good. God is on the throne. This won't be forever. And it's not that these aren't factual things. God is good. God is on the throne. Uh, This will not be forever. But the problem is, is that we shortchange sometimes that feeling of hopelessness. We try to cover it up and hide it because we're embarrassed by it. We don't quite know how to hope, and we would like to learn how. And in the book of Micah, if you've been with us through this series, we've seen that they've been receiving judgment after judgment for their sin. And it wasn't just the people who committed the sins that were going to be receiving the judgment, but the whole nation. They had already seen the northern kingdom be decimated by the Assyrians. And Micah's prophesying to the southern kingdom, the people in Jerusalem, that the Babylonians are going to come and take them away in, in just like 80 years' time. The city will be destroyed brick by brick. Their children will have nothing. Whatever they've worked for will be meaningless. They will be slaves once again. In Micah, the people were feeling quite hopeless. But here in chapter 7, in the midst of their hopelessness, we see glimpses of hope. And it's easy, again, to take these factual, true things and kind of shortchange that feeling of hopelessness. But what I hope that we can see today, that being at the end of the book of Micah, after everything else that we have read through, that these promises of hope actually are teaching God's people how to hope. And so today, what I want for for us is actually to look at God's people in Micah and say they are going to teach us how to hope. And I think that what we're going to see is that there's going to be two steps Uh, in order to learn how to be hopeful people in the midst of hopelessness, and that's that we have to look at God's character and we have to wait for his salvation. Look at his character and wait for his salvation. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Micah chapter 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation 
my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations, nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like, the, like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn and dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So I said that the people of Mike are going to teach us how to hope today. Um, being in a very hopeless situation, uh, they, this, end, this passage ends uh, the, the message that Micah had for his people. And at the very end of this message, he, he is uh, aiming to teach them how to hope, and they are supposed to look at God's character and wait for his salvation. So first, to look at God's character. Um, can you think of a time when you like disobeyed your parents? <laughs> Um, and you knew that you had done wrong, and you knew that there were some consequences coming, uh, and you knew that you were going to be facing uh, not only the consequences for those actions, uh, but maybe something even worse, what we might call a parental disappointment. I know there were a number of times uh, that for foolish teenage reasons, I decided that I could stay a little bit longer because I could make up the time on the drive home for, uh, to, to be home before curfew. And this happened more than once, so you can understand where this is going. Uh, I would be like, no, 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 I've got 10 more minutes. I've got 10 more minutes. And then I'd be like trying to get home, and we're ignoring all the tickets that may or may not have happened between that time, uh, trying to get home. Uh, but then getting home and realizing that I'm still 15 minutes late. And you know, I knew that there was going to be consequences for these actions, some sort of grounding, losing phones, or ability to drive and visit friends, or, or whatever my father had for me at that point. But honestly, what I was most intimidated by was disappointing my father. You see, when I was facing some of uh, these consequences for my sin, I was afraid that fatherly discipline would become fatherly disappointment. And in fact, I actually probably thought that that's the way that it should be. 
that's the way that I should carry this. I did break the rules, I knew it full well, and now these are the consequences that I should bear? Distance, disappointment. In the first part of Micah 7, which we didn't read, the first six verses, um, the Israelites are kind of wandering around their land, and they're realizing that it's barren. Like this, this land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey and fruits and prosperous that had been promised 700 years ago uh, to their forebears, they said this land was supposed to be a good land. And they're looking around at it and it suddenly dawns on them, we did this. The consequences for the sin might be one thing, but what about the fatherly disappointment? How could God ever be proud of this? And as we look out on the barren wasteland and we experience the consequences of our actions, it may not be the consequences themselves that haunt us and that exasperate our hopelessness, but actually the fear of fatherly disappointment. But in these first few verses of Micah, you see that the people are only looking at themselves. They're looking at their actions, their leaders, Uh, They're looking at their land, uh, the fortifications that they had built, uh, and it had all kind of crumbled. But in verse 7, where we started, uh, change happens. And there's, in some sense, a voice crying out at the beginning of verse 7 that says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. And the expectation is, what are they going to find there? Are they going to find fatherly disappointment? And in verses 8 through 10, what they saw was God's disposition towards them. Now, it's a little interesting if you were to read through verses 8 through 10, uh, because it sounds somewhat violent, uh, you know? Uh, And and in the context of Micah, the way that this is being described, God's disposition towards them, is that God is a God who delights to save, who loves them enough to go trample all their enemies. Those ones who gloated over them, God is going to stand above and say, no, I am here. I do fight for my people. But this wasn't it for Micah's people. Because what they recognized in those first few verses of Micah chapter 7 was that it wasn't just external enemies, but also internal enemies. They didn't need to be saved just from Assyria or from Babylon. They needed to be saved from themselves. They couldn't obey God like they were supposed to. And in verses 8 through 10, they're asked to look at how God vanquished enemies uh, in Israel's past. And when they were Exodus and they're passing through the Red Sea and God drowned the Egyptian army. And they said, God is going to do this very same thing to your sin. And when we look to God for hope and we see that he rescues us, What we see is that God is going to save us not only from our external enemies, but he's also going to save us from our very selves. Why does that give us hope? Why should that give Israel hope? Is there something that they're supposed to taste in that there and now? Is it just a future thing that they're waiting for? Is it so far off that they're like, well, someday God will do it, but he hasn't done it for us. We only have judgment coming. For me, I just face the fatherly disappointment. And I think we ask the same questions of ourselves. We say, God, I've sinned against you, and I don't know if I'm ever going to stop this sin. I keep doing it over and over and over again, and I feel alienated from you, and you say that you cannot even be near sin, and so I know that you're keeping me at an arm's length. 
And I know that someday you'll trample down all of my sins and make things right. And that someday I will behold you face to face. But right now, I think that all I'm going to get from you is fatherly disappointment. But something has changed in the people from verses 1 through 7 all the way through to 8 through 10. Um, In 8 through 10, they start to acknowledge that they have wronged God. And in this acknowledgement, they actually get to experience a little bit of hope. You see, Micah's day, they acknowledge that they had fallen in verse 9, that they deserved the indignation of the Lord. The people recognized that they had actually wronged God, that they didn't deserve to have God fight for him, and yet he did it anyway. You see, there's something that happened simultaneously in the people as they looked away from themselves and they looked towards God that gave them hope. They not only saw a God that would fight for them and a God that was righteous and holy, they saw a God that said, I love you enough to remove that sin from you. I love you enough to trample over the enemy that is your own betraying heart. And how you're going to taste it here and now is by repentance. (laughs) You're going to recognize who I am. When you look away from yourself and you look at God, you see God for who he is and you see that he is a God who loves to forgive iniquities. If you jumped all the way to the end in verses 18 through 20, you would see that it is a God who delights to care for his people. And what does he ask of them? But what we have seen in previous chapters of Micah, but to walk humbly, to recognize that we don't deserve it. And as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, we see that even in repentance, God comes closer. We're not hiding our sin from him. We're not storing up disappointment that if he could find out that he'd be ashamed of us. When we come before him and we lay it out and we say it's only because of Jesus, God delights to forgive them. That is what his people are marked by. (laughs) And in that experience of repentance, which we do together today, we confessed our sins together and we confessed them silently and we heard God's assurance of pardon from these very verses that he delights to forgive us. And in that moment, we take God at his words and we know that there is hope there, that God has not lied. He did not lie to the people in Micah and he is not lying to us now. If we feel hopeless because of the sin that we have committed against God, we have not looked close enough at Jesus. Because I promise you, if you look close enough at Jesus, you will see that every sin can be paid for, that his blood is sufficient to cover And we are waiting for that day when we are actually renewed in our wholeness and can live like we're supposed to. But now we get his word declaring to us, behold, this is my blood shed for you, shed for the remission of sins. And we know that it was good because he's not in the grave. The grave couldn't hold him anymore, but he had paid for all the sins and is resurrected. This is the king that we worship. And in our hopelessness, this is the king whose eyes we must fixate on. But to learn to hope in the midst of our sin, we do need to look at God's character and disposition towards us, that he delights to forgive his repentant people. But the second thing that we must do is wait. (laughs) 
And I mentioned this already, but we, have, we must wait for the fullness of that day when we are going to be made new. Uh, Joaquin, my son, uh, my, my three-year-old, right, he, he can't wait at all. I don't know if you've ever met a three-year-old. Uh, they don't do good with waiting. Um, and so here's the thing, like we start our day and he asks, he wants to know what we're going to do for the day. And he's like, you know, daddy, what are we going to do for the day? I'm like, well, we're going to have some friends come over later. And then if he hears friends come over, it is just that on repeat all day. If the friends aren't here now, are they going to come at all? And it's just over and over. And yet he gets frustrated and discouraged and angry because it hasn't happened yet, this thing that he's longing for. The three-year-old's conception of time is not the same as my own. And we might say that our conception of time is not the same as God's. If our full salvation isn't coming now, is it coming at all? You see, if our first point was maybe uh, finding hopelessness because of what we've done wrong against God, our second point is, is finding hope um, uh, in the midst of our feeling hopelessness when we're not sure if we've necessarily done anything wrong. It's just our finiteness, the fact that we are human beings who live within space and time, and we don't know when salvation is coming. Micah's audience also felt hopeless in this way. They were worried that there would be something more pressing in the intervening time, that God might get distracted, that he might find a better people than themselves. And so in verses 11 through 17, God, the good and heavenly father, is coming down the stairs as the persistent children are asking him over and over again, and he recounts to them again the blessings. I'm going to build walls with boundaries extended, verse 11. Verse 12, the nations will flow as I promised Abraham. The place where you will dwell will be blessed and the rest of the earth will seem like desolation because it's what happens without God, verse 13. God himself will lead and protect them as their shepherd king, verse 14. And they will pasture, they, they as sheep will be pastured in the good land. Those who mocked them will be ashamed and scared. They may even go on the bellies like serpents, like Satan himself that deceived us, licking the dust of the earth, verse 17. All of these things have been said in other places of the Bible. In verses 11 through 17, you could find them. They're, they're just Micah echoing other promises that these people need to hear again as they wait. Finding hope and waiting is declaring over and over again the promises that God has made to us. To hope, we not only need to look at God's character towards us in our sin, but we also need to wait for the salvation that he has promised. Not just look and see his character, but remind ourselves about how good it's going to be. Jesus said that he was this good shepherd, that he was this king, that he would feed and protect us, that he would break us free from those things that oppress us. And there was probably a day in our life well, we accepted that with joy and it felt present. As close as right in front of our face. Salvation was here. But as time has gone on, hopelessness has set in and our finite minds have started to wander like a three-year-old, God, where are you? And it is in those moments that we need to declare again God's promises to us. Because we're like forgetful children. Now, I'm, I'm worried that you hear me like disparaging my three-year-old sense of time, and I, and I hope that's not the case, 
Um, we get irritated at three-year-olds' need for constant reassurance um, that what they were told was going to happen was actually going to happen. Uh, and so we assume that God's actually going to do the same with us. Uh, that if we went to God and we asked him, like, God, tell me again the promises, that he's going to be like, I can't tell you again. But I'd encourage you to see how Jesus himself, God incarnate, treated children. Let the little children come to me. Unless one of you comes with faith like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just ponder a second the faith of a child when they're asked to wait. A child's faith needs constant reassurance. <laughs> and we're God's children. Part of Christian maturity, part of learning how to hope, is accepting that we also need our faith shored up. It's not a one-time event where we come forward and we sign the prayer or pray the prayer and sign the, the sheet of paper. It's not just um, one event where suddenly we felt this, this moving of the Spirit. It is a lifetime practice of running to God again and say, tell me while I wait. I need to know these promises. One way that we tell these promises over and over and over again is by singing our songs and hymns. Uh, there's something super powerful about singing, um, something majestic about old hymns and something powerful about new hymns. And the best hymn writers have always found a way to blend uh, these realities of kind of ancient melodies and texts um, kind of with uh, mo modern music writing. And these songs tell us these stories. They remind us what we're waiting for. They help us wait because they teach us to hope. Now, when we look at God's disposition towards us in Jesus, we're brought to repentance because we recognize that we don't deserve it, but that he fought for us anyway. And while we wait, we have learned to sing in order to teach ourselves hope. But there is uh, one bigger application, if I can, where we do both of these things where we not only learn about God's character, where we not only repent, where we not only sing, but have promises declared to us again and again, and it's actually worship together. What we're doing right now. Now see, Micah's audience in verses 18 through 20 uh, are quoting, they're alluding to something that God himself had told Moses in Exodus 34. And so um, if you've got your bulletins open and you're looking at 18 through 20, just look at those verses while I read Exodus 34. So you're just looking for kind of the illusions that they're drawing on. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. This was not only said in Exodus 34 and here in Micah, Allusions to this verse of Exodus 34 can be found throughout the Old Testament, in First and Second Kings, in the prophets, in the Psalms. It can be found in the New Testament, in Luke, in John, Ephesians, and Romans. And what we learn from this, and what we learn from the people of Micah, is that they gathered together to have God's word proclaimed to them again and again because they needed to learn to hope. They needed to be told the promises again and again. And in worship, we look for how his love drives us, how he calls us into worship, and how he tramples our enemies, including our own sin. We called this morning the gates to lift up their heads because the king of glory is coming in. We wait for this future deliverance together. We repent of our sins, and we gather here together 
to say that when we see King Jesus, we go, there it is. There's the deliverance that we've been waiting for. He's the hope that we've needed. He brings the salvation to all of our sin and wrongdoing. He brings what seems forever far off right here in front of us. Do you see how Jesus trampled over death with his very own death? Do you see how he redeemed the world and all that is in it? The reason that Christians gather together for worship is not primary, primarily to learn how to be holier. Of course we do that. And it's not some weird sense of ceremonial duty to impress a God who needs attention, though we are made to praise him. The primary reason that we gather together every Sunday morning is so that we might accept that we are three-year-olds together. That we might run to God and say, tell us again your promises. Assure me again that what you said was going to come true is going to come true. And I hope that I'm not missing uh, any, any point here about how Christians tend to learn to hope best is that they go to church. And I don't know about you, but I need to come to church so that my eyes might be drawn to God in a new way. I need to come to church so that I might be called to repentance. Of course I can do this on my own um, in my closet, as, as some Christians will say. You know, you can pray to God in your closet, and that's, that's where you're supposed to do it. But there's something here about hearing all of these people in these rooms confess that prayer of confession together that says, all of these people say that they depend upon Jesus as much as I do. And my hope doesn't feel very strong right now, but with the rest of them, it feels a little bit stronger. I need to hear God assure me again that it is actually forgiven in Jesus Christ. I needed it declared over me again and again. I need, it, I need to sing while I wait, while I wait for healing from my own sadnesses and hurts, when I'm in the midst of the consequences of my own actions, even when I can't find the words myself to sing and I am silent, but I hear the voices around me proclaiming the deliverance of the Lord, my hope is increased. In order to hope, I need the church. The Christian life cannot be done rightly in solitude. Even Christian monks, who may have spent a lot of time in solitude, lived in a community of other monks. In our worship, we hear about God's covenantal faithfulness from generation to generation. Micah's people were doing the same thing. They looked back 700 years before, and they said, God's faithfulness. We read about it today, and we say, God's faithfulness. We read about Jesus and the deliverance that he was provided, how he was the, the, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises that actually trampled over all of our enemies, and we say, God's faithfulness. We hear stories from one another's lives. Stories of, of conversion and salvation and redemption, and we say God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what gives us hope. We look and see God's faithfulness throughout Scripture. We look and see it to them, to uh, the, the people in the New Testament, to ourselves today, and we declare it over and over and over again. And we read the testimony from these ancient people, these, these ones that are from of old, like Micah's audience itself said, said these promises were of old. And we see these promises of old, 
And we see them all fulfilled in Jesus. And that is why our hope is not blind. It's not just a blind hope that maybe someday it'll come true. But it's a hope that bled and died for us. A hope that while on the cross said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. A hope that pursued us into death itself and that triumphed over death itself. Our most ancient enemy. Our hope is sure and steadfast because Jesus the Lord stands as the one who guaranteed it, resurrected from the dead. Our hope is sure and steadfast because we hope in the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is in whom our hope rests. Jesus um, not only has us come together to worship so that we can sing and confess our sins um, and hear these proclamations declared over us again and again of these promises, but he also wants us to taste it, or in Anna's case, as we witness today, to feel it on top of our heads, to feel the cleansing power of Jesus and taste it in our mouths. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples as I'm ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said, take this bread, eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after he blessed and given thanks for the cup, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of the sins of many. Drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, this is a tangible sign intended, intended to give us hope in the midst of our hopelessness. Like the rest of this service, it is designed to teach us that God is here declaring promises again and again and again, that Jesus' body and blood is for you, for you, to take and eat. It's not kept far off. It's not distant at an arm's length. Jesus himself invites you to his table, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the most magnificent table that we have ever seen. And here and now we get a foretaste of this feast that we will experience in its full when the time has come. If you're not sure that this is who this God is for you, if you're not sure that Jesus covers any and all of your sins, and if you haven't been baptized, we would ask you to refrain from this section of the service to reflect on what Jesus has done for you to reflect on that reality of who he is, that he pursues you and gives you hope. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle uh, to the two serving stations on my right and left over here. Um, there are gluten-free options for the bread. Please just notify your server, and then you can grab the wine or grape juice. The wine is red, the grape juice is clear. Please take according to your conscience. Uh, if you would, please pray with me. Our reigning king who trampled down our most ancient enemy. You didn't trample down our enemy and stay far off in your palace. You invited us to a wedding feast. A declaration that all things will be made new. And although this is only a foretaste of that great and glorious day where we will feast together, 
We ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, it might give us hope today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.